Today's scripture reading is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 44 through chapter 5, verse 7. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel, and these are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Hesbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land, and the land of Og, and the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror, which is the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Siron, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, the prophet Samuel tells a rather humorous and sobering story in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. Uh, that the Israelites are at war with a neighboring nation, their, uh, their arch nemesis, so to speak, the Philistines, and they've just lost a really significant battle. They don't know why. So what the elders of Israel come up with a new plan. They, they try to use the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a holy vessel representing the presence of God and the, among the people of God, as a lucky charm. They don't pray and ask for God's help. There's no expression of humble dependence on the Lord. In, in their mind, God is a religious thing. And it that they could deploy at their discretion to get the victory they wanted. God God must not be helping us win the battle because we have yet to bring him here. So they thought. And no surprise, the Philistines defeat the Israelites again, and this time they capture the ark. Think about that. And they're rejoicing in their triumph, and they bring it to the city of Ashdod, and then In 1 Samuel 5, we read, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. We've got the magic now. (laughs) One more God in our collection. Well, listen to what happens next. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. He tolerates no rivals. But the Philistines conclude, Dagon just simply needs a little bit of help. I mean, one of the great ironies in the whole situation is that the Israelites are doing the same thing the Philistines are doing. Everybody thinks they can just bring their God wherever they want him to go. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. What kind of God is that? But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. This is in Dagon's temple. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
Why? It's not a mystery, friend. It's, it's, it's because of the one true God with whom we have to do and before whom are all your ways and to whom every person in this room is accountable, that God will not stand idly by while we put other gods before his face. He requires absolute loyalty. He demands absolute loyalty. He deserves absolute loyalty. He will not share his glory with another. He will not give his glory to another. And if we try to to use him or, or manipulate him to get the goodies we want, he'll bring the entire idolatrous enterprise crashing to the ground. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, Paul says, not all possess this knowledge. And friends, that's why the law of God, given to us through the gift of his word, is is such a precious gift. Because it, it confronts us, the law of God confronts us with the godness of God. Okay? With the singularity of God with the supremacy of God, with the the exclusive worship the one true God deserves. I think we're prone to to think of God's law as a bunch of religious rules, aren't we? And I I know I am. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do that. Do this. Just list the rules. Shackles on our freedom. Limits on our self-expression, barriers to happiness. Deuteronomy 4:44 through 5:7 paints a radically different picture. Obeying God's law, here's Moses' point, requires absolute loyalty to God's Son. In response or through the liberating power of God's grace. It's not about keeping a bunch of random rules. Okay, we're going to see that this morning. It's about, about loving God first and best. And that's not something that we do, friend, to earn God's favor. Okay? It's about, about living in the freedom God has graciously won for us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we may, we've said this again and again in this series, we, we may live at a, and we do, a very different point in redemptive history than Israel did, okay? But the spiritual message they needed to hear is the same spiritual message we need to hear. Let's look at that in four parts. First, point one, obedience is required by a faithful God. All these points are about obedience, okay? Obedience, first thing we need to know about it is it's required by a faithful God. Think think about this. When, When someone in authority over you makes a rule. What does that feel like? Well, you're like, well, it depends on if I like it, <laughs> right? Like, well, I think many times, especially if we don't like it, it, it can feel like that person just wants to control you. I don't know why you're making rules. You're just trying to control me. Why don't you just come out and say so? They're not interested in doing good to you. It's it's a power play. It's an unfortunate imposition. And we can kind of mentally gear up for as much when we read in Deuteronomy 4, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel. It's like, oh boy, here we go. Another list of rules. I wonder what God wants from me now. But that's not at all what Moses does. He doesn't launch into rule number one after verse 45. What does he do? Look at the verse. He summarizes 
that the history of God's relationship with Israel, that he's just spent Deuteronomy 1 through 4 recounting particularly the last 40 years of that history. He's acutely aware, he's a good pastor, that in order for Israel to hear and learn and obey God's law for what it is, she needs to know something about the God who gave it to her in the first place. Namely, that he's a faithful God. Obedience isn't, here's the point, obedience isn't required by a a grasping power-hungry, maliciously controlling God. It's required by a faithful God, friend, by a kind God, by a, a merciful God. What does the end of verse 45 say? Look there. Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. What's that all about? 40 years earlier, the Lord did something amazing for his people. That's what that's about. He, he rescued them from the hand of their human oppressors. He gave them life. It was an act of salvation they they could not earn, they did not deserve. And now where are they? They're standing, what does he say? Beyond the Jordan. They're, They're about to cross into the land of Canaan that God promised their forefathers he would give them. And and it's as if Moses is saying, guys, don't forget, the banner over the last 40 years of our existence is what? Haven't you been good? And you've got this glorious future in sight. But there's something else in sight. And that's Israel's persistent tendency to go her own way. God saved her from Egypt. Faithful. But that didn't change the fundamental orientation of her heart. And there's a little geographic detail in verse 46 that reminds us of as much. She is where? In the valley opposite Beth Peor. That's an allusion to Numbers 25, where where Israel started to worship the Canaanite god, false god, idol, of Baal. After just giving in to, to rampant sexual immorality with the women of Moab. It, it's a, Peor was a case study in human unfaithfulness to God. And a sharp contrast to God's faithfulness to her and what makes his continued faithfulness in verse 46 all the more stunning friends. So yes, Israel is in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but notice that's also the very place, what does Moses say? Where's Beth of Peor? In the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. You see that? Divine deliverance meeting her in the hour of her unfaithfulness. Just an exhibit A that, that God's salvation in Israel's life, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a one and done thing. Hey, I did Egypt, now you do you. <laughs> no. That was just the beginning of a faithful act of divine deliverance, one after another after another. Case in point, the very land she's standing on, assembled around Moses right now as she's hearing the book of Deuteronomy. Because until recently, that land belonged to a pagan king until God delivered him into Israel's hands. And by doing that, Yahweh was not just strutting his stuff, okay? He was keeping his promises. Look at verse 47. The first phrase, and they took possession of his land, that points all the way back to Genesis 12 and 13, where centuries earlier, God promised something. He he promised to give Abraham's descendants a a place to dwell in, a a land of their own possession where, where they could experience the joy of life with him. So right away, Moses is alerting us to the fact that that Yahweh is merciful when Israel rebels. Yahweh continues to save even when she runs in the opposite direction because he's a faithful God. 
And every one of those geographic cities that none of us really wants to try to pronounce, in verses 48 and 49, they shout of his faithfulness, friends. They really do. And remind us that that the faithfulness of God is, is not just this abstract theory or idea. Yeah, I know in the spiritual world, in a principled, ideological, philosophical kind of, I know what's true out there somewhere kind of way, God is faithful. No. His faithfulness is as real as the slopes of Pisgah. Look at him, Israel. There's Beth of Peor. Remember that. But then look at the slopes of Pisgah. Look where you're standing. Obedience is required by a faithful God. Yes, Moses gave them the law and testimonies and statutes and rules from God himself, but but friend, don't miss the context, okay? Lest you question the motive of the lawgiver. Obedience is required by a faithful God. Here's the second lesson, point number two. Obedience is an expression of relationship with God. So it's required by faithful God. What else is it? It's an expression of relationship with God. Here we're looking at the first five verses of chapter five. That the whole book of Deuteronomy is all about the nature of God's covenant relationship with his people. Okay, that the structure of the book shouts that. So, so it's no surprise that as, as Moses finishes, we're at a hinge point here, a transition. He finishes kind of the historical review, history of the relationship between the parties, Yahweh and Israel in chapters one through four, as he's about to begin his second speech in chapter 5, he circles back around to the covenant character of the whole thing. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Why? Why should we do that? Look at verse 2. Because the Lord our God made a covenant with us. At Horeb. We have all sorts of relationships in this life, don't we? You ever just stop and think about how many different kinds of relationships you have? And I'm not talking about, well, I guess they're one form, but, you know, the online friends thing. Real relationships. (laughs) Work relationships. Neighborhood relationships. Family relationships. Friend relationships. Relationships with pets. Relationships with a mailman. Listen, you you have a lot of relationships. Relationship with God is not just one of the bunch. Do you realize that? It's an entirely different sort of relationship because it's a covenant kind of relationship. Okay? You don't have a covenant with your mailman. It's a relationship built on oath-bound promises. And the closest analogy we have in this life on a human level is is a marriage relationship. Which, side note, is why faithfulness to your spouse is such a critical part of how we make much of the faithfulness of God. It's built on promises or vows, right? Done a lot of weddings. What do they all have in common? Lots of different music, lots of different dresses. They all have vows. Promises of fidelity. It's, it's, not, it's not commercial or transactional. At least you better not make it that. <laughs> you know, you, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That, that's not at all the case. It's, it's covenantal. Come what may, I will remain faithful to you. That was God's promise to Israel and her responsibility toward him. So think about this with me. Why would Moses remind Israel of the covenant nature of her relationship with him right before she be, he, he begins a 22-chapter exposition of all the details of God's law? Think about that. Why, why would he do that? Before 22 chapters of what it means to obey God, let's go back to the covenant character of your relationship with him. Why would he do that? Listen, friend, it's because obedience at its core is more than behavioral. 
It's relational. Okay, I'm going to say that again. And if you have notes, you should write this down. Obedience at its core is more than just behavioral. It's relational. We need to remember that. It's not primarily about keeping a list of rules. It's about relating to God in the right kind of way. But fulfilling, as it were, our our relational responsibilities toward him. So, so you go throughout the whole Bible. This isn't just true in Deuteronomy, okay? Obedience to God is always an expression of relationship with God. It's relational. Always. And, and Moses highlights several implications, I'll, I'll mention three, of the covenantal character of Israel's relationship with God in verses 3 to 5, okay? Quickly, first, that means it's enduring. It's enduring. Of all the millions of people listening to him right now, as he's literally preaching Deuteronomy, you know how many of them were back at Horeb, Mount Sinai? There's millions listening to him. How many were back at Sinai 40 years earlier? Two. Joshua and Caleb. The rest were all second generation Israelites who grew up in the church, so to speak. But what does Moses say to them? Look at verse 3. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant in a not only with our fathers kind of sense, but with us who are all of us here alive today. What's he saying? Covenant relationship with God isn't just a thing for your parents, friend. It's an enduring relationship God holds out to you and me. It's enduring. Second, it's intimately personal. It's personal. Notice God spoke to Israel. Moses says, look at verse 4. Out of the blazing fire of his holiness at Sinai, establishing relationship with her in what kind of way? In a face-to-face kind of way. And that same word, preview, shows up again in verse 7 when the Lord literally tells Israel, literal translation, to have no other gods before his face. Why not? Because of the nature of his relationship with her. It's a face-to-face, covenant, enduring, personal kind of relationship. Finally, because it's covenantal, it's mediated. Look at verse 5. Moses says, I stood between you and the Lord at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid, guys. (laughs) They were acutely aware, we'll get to this soon in Deuteronomy, that the God with whom they had to do was, he was transcendent. He was holy. They, they, all they had to do was get close to him and realize, I'm a sinner that does not belong anywhere near this God. I, I, I can't just, what's up? <laughs> As Job says, I need someone to lay his hand on us both. I need a mediator. I can't just saunter in here. Friends, the same principle holds true today. We may only come to God and relate with God in the way he proposes and that he makes possible through faith in Jesus Christ. He hasn't stopped, here's the good news, establishing covenant relationships that are enduring and personal and mediated. Do you see that? that that's... That's exactly what he offers us today through the gospel. The new covenant in his blood that is built on immeasurably better promises than the covenant at Sinai. Why do I say that? Because in the new covenant, we have what kind of promises? What kind of oath-bound promises? Promises to forgive all your sins. Once and for all. Promises to give you a new heart. Promise to give you a new spirit with power to obey. Promises built on Jesus Christ, not you. As the faithful covenant partner. The true Israel who did everything for God, what we perpetually, like Israel, failed to do. He was the perfectly obedient son. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. And his his mediation, his intercession, his instruction is infinitely more effective than Moses. 
Why do I say that? Because the best Moses could do was deliver the word of God. (laughs) What's Jesus? He is the word of God, right? Big difference, far better. The word made flesh, the son of God incarnate in Christ. God has what? Literally spoken to us, literally in a face-to-face kind of way. With a clarity the people of God had never known before. And by trusting Jesus and following Jesus and and looking to Jesus alone to satisfy your soul, make you right with God, friend, you can receive an eternal blessing of covenant relationship with him. That's the gospel. But remember why Moses lingers here on this covenant relationship. Because the call to obedience in scripture, no matter where it shows up, it's it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Hey, God is faithful. God is good. God is holy. Oh, by the way, you got to obey. Oh, oh, yikes. I like the other stuff better. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not just floating around in a vacuum, okay? It's always the call to obey. It's always in the context of relationship with God because obedience is an expression of relationship with God. So, so think about it this way, okay? Obeying God is about a whole lot more than what you do or don't do. What you do or don't do is all about the way you are relating to God. That's the root issue, okay? That's the the big deal here. And, And in your case, Christian, it's about a posture of heart toward God who purchased you for himself at the cost of his own blood. That's why we obey. It's in the context of relationship, okay? But let's, let's linger on this even more because Moses does. Look at verse six, point number three. Obedience is enabled by the redeeming grace of God. So it's, it, what is obedience? It's required by a faithful God. It goes down in the context of covenant relationship with God. And it's enabled by the redeeming grace of God. So Moses here, as he gets to verse six, he's, on the, he's like, on the edge of the Grand Canyon, about to plunge into the next 20-odd-some chapters of detailed exposition and application of the law. And verse 6 is really important. It's critical. You get this wrong, you'll get the rest of the book wrong. So listen. Even though we are not under the Mosaic law in a covenantal sense, we're under the New Covenant, Because Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law. That's true. Even though that's all true, the Mosaic law remains no less authoritative in the church today. Why? Because Christ didn't come to do away with the law. Well, that was the authority back then, and that was kind of bad news, so let's set up a new authority over here. No, he fulfilled the law. And so the question we have to ask as we plunge off this cliff into the whole rest of Deuteronomy in many ways is this. How has the person and work of Christ transformed this law? And as we look at verse 6 in particular, we're going to do this again and again. How has the person and work of Christ, how does it enable us to keep this law? We're just going to keep coming back to the gospel over and over and over again. Because that's what God himself teaches us to do. What Christ tells us to do. How, how does Christ fulfill this law? Transform its claim on us. Not do away with it. Transform it. And then how does Jesus Christ enable us to fulfill that? I'm not imposing something arbitrary that Moses didn't see coming when I ask those questions. Okay? When we ask those questions, we are, please hear this, we're interpreting God's commands in light of God's redeeming work, because God's redeeming work is baked into Deuteronomy 5 verse 6. We're just doing what Moses himself is doing, okay? Look at verse 6. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's break that down, okay? Three things. First, I am the Lord. (laughs) 
What's that? That's God establishing his authority as the divine lawgiver. I am the Lord. What what God requires of us in order to experience the joy of life with him, so important, what he requires of us, everything we find in his law, is not built, friend, on what we think is reasonable, but on who God is. We have to start there. All we're about to study in Deuteronomy, here's the implication of that, okay, is is not a history of religions or or a a cultural model of spirituality that that we can kind of judge and refashion and update with the times, okay? It's built on something very different. It is built on the unchanging character of an eternal God. I am the Lord. (laughs) That's where the law starts. Second, who is this Lord Israel? He's not just the God. He's what? Your God. I am the Lord and I'm your God. In other words, in his great mercy, Israel, the self-existent one, he drew you to himself. He made you his own. He sovereignly acted to to make relationship with him a reality. Remember, relationship with Yahweh wasn't Israel's idea. God chose her. God set his affections on her. It wasn't like, thinking how to illustrate this, it, it wasn't like Israel was just kind of going through a dating app of deities. And when she got to Yahweh, boop, she swiped right. Okay? No. God pursued her. God made a covenant with her. You're mine. I'm yours. It's not just the Lord. He's your God. Third, having reviewed who he is, I'm the Lord, your God. That's who I am, Israel. Now let's turn our attention to something equally important. What have I done? Scripture brings us back to those two things over and over again. Who is the Lord? What has he done? Who is the Lord? What has he done? What, what has he done in this case? What's the Lord done for you? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What, what did God do? What did Yahweh do? Having resolved, unilaterally resolved to give Israel life, to be your God. He acted to rescue her from slavery. Deliver her from oppression. He, he didn't meet her halfway. It, it wasn't something God did for her when she was begging and asking and almost there and just needed, you know, God helps those who help themselves. No, she was helpless and powerless and, and incapable. The, the whole story of the Exodus, deliverance from Egypt, is all about God using the strength of his arm to bring Israel out of the house of Egypt, out of slavery's house, and into a new kind of house. What's that? God's house. The house of what? Freedom. From the house of Egypt to the house of God. From the house of slavery to a life of freedom. And over and over again in the Bible, that physical exodus from Egypt, that slavery in Egypt, is is a, a paradigm, a picture of our collective spiritual slavery to sin and death. A a slavery Christ alone can deliver you from, my friend. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who makes a practice, who everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We sang that this morning, didn't we? Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. Our our sinful nature, think of it this way, is like a car that is completely out of alignment. You ever had a car that's completely and awfully and pervasively and persistently out of alignment? What's it do?
that better? Okay. There we go. Thanks, Christopher. So where are we? We are thinking about how the sinful nature is like a car that is horribly out of alignment. That's what our slavery to sin is like, which is what makes freedom from slavery to sin one of the sweetest blessings of the gospel. And that's a blessing we need to think really carefully about because I often think we get the whole notion of Christian freedom utterly wrong. Okay, so follow me here, all right? We tend to think of freedom in a, in a negative sense. What's freedom? What's it mean to be free? I'm an American. I, I drink to freedom, right? Like, it's, what is freedom? It's the absence of external constraint. No boxes, no chains, no authorities outside the expressive individual. Nobody else getting in my business and telling me I can't do me. Okay? Freedom is what you have when other people quit telling you what to do so you can finally do you. The biblical vision of freedom is utterly different from that. Completely different. Okay? It's not merely freedom from something, be that the power of the world, the flesh, the devil. It's freedom for something, for freedom to serve the Lord. Notice Deuteronomy 5 doesn't stop with verse 6. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. End of story. Have a great life doing you. Go for it, Israel. No, no. No, what what immediately follows the glad news of deliverance in verse 6? The Ten Commandments in verses 7 through 21. The call to obey and serve the Lord. Friend, if you can hold on to this principle, this will change the way you think about God's law. What's the principle? Biblical freedom is not freedom from the need to obey. It's freedom through the power to obey. It's, It's not freedom from obedience, it's freedom for obedience. Because only when you're running hard down the path of obedience to God's word, are you really and truly free. (laughs) Why? Because when you're running down that path and that path only, you are living in the way God created you to live. And so when you think about freedom that way, God's law isn't an obstacle to freedom, it defines freedom. It's not primarily about what you cannot do. It's about what you get to do. You get to live. You get to serve the Lord. Because as long as Israel was enslaved in Egypt, what could she not do? She wasn't free to serve the Lord. As long as we are enslaved to our sinful flesh, what can we not do? We can't serve the Lord either. (laughs) And that's the freedom Jesus won for you at the cross. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Free to serve. Free to, free to find out what pleases the Lord. Free, free to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Free, free to keep God's law. Not, not to earn our salvation, but because we've been saved. <laughs> and because that's the entire reason Christ saves the people in the first place. You see? So that we might be his own possession who are zealous for good works. Sometimes Christians talk about, well, Jesus kept God's law on my behalf, so now I don't have to worry about all that junk. (laughs) That's not the gospel. That's not even partially true, okay? Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave. Hear this, friend. So that you and I could joyfully and freely run in the path of God's commands. So freedom to obey is the goal of redemption. You approach the gospel and say, thank God Christ obeyed. So now, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do because I've got to get out of jail free card. (laughs) No, no, you don't understand the gospel. Freedom to obey from the beginning of the Bible to the end. In the old covenant, in the new. Freedom to obey has always been the goal of redemption. 
always. And the grace God has lavished on us in Christ Jesus is the only power that can enable you to obey the Lord. (laughs) All right? Christopher Wright says this so well. The commandments were given to Israel, not so they could perhaps gain salvation by keeping them, but because God had already redeemed them. And this was how they were to live in light of that fact. You see how that can change your whole attitude toward God's law? Like, this marks out the very freedom Christ purchased for me. What a privilege, friend. What a privilege. And that's why I'm really excited. We're going we're gonna to linger for 10 weeks on the Ten Commandments. We're going to do one commandment each week. And the reason we're going to do that is because a lot of people in this room, myself included, you've been in church a long time, you grew up in the church, you could probably recite them backwards in Hebrew, maybe not. But, but we're very familiar with them. And that's a danger. And so what are we going to do week after week? We're going to handbrake, slow down, and say, how does the personal work of Christ transform this command? And how does the personal work of Christ enable me to run in the path of this command? So excited to do that together. Point number four, obedience consists, we're going to end with the first commandment, okay? Consists of absolute loyalty to God. So it's required by a faithful God. It goes down in the context of covenant relationship with God. It's enabled by the grace of God. But what's it consist of? We've talked about who's the God it comes from? What's the context in which it goes down? What makes it possible? But, but what is it actually? Well, it's absolute loyalty to God. Look at verse 7. Because I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, how then must you live? You shall have no other gods before me or before my face. So at a basic level, the first commandment means what? We must flee idolatry. So we've seen that last few weeks in Deuteronomy 4. What's an idol? An idol is anything that we love and serve more than we love and serve God. We can make all kinds of things idols. Health, wealth, pleasure, power, you name it. We worship all of them. At least we're tempted to. But but here's where we need to linger a little bit deeper. Okay? Because many of the commandments, like the first one, they come in the form of a prohibition. And I think it's really easy to say, well, I did a quick inventory of my heart. I walked around my house. I didn't see any daggins, so... I got your first one, Lord. <laughs> right? No idols in here. Hear me, friend. Embedded in every prohibition is an equally critical admonition. John Calvin says it this way. In forbidding us to have strange gods, he means that we're not to transfer to another what belongs to him. What would you say <laughs> belongs to God, friend? Think about that. What, what is it that belongs to him? That, that we're not to, to transfer to another. Well, Calvin helpfully breaks this down in four categories. The banner of it all is, is giving the Lord the worship he deserves, but what does that even mean? Four categories, really helpful here. Adoration, trust, invocation, and thanksgiving. All right? Don't freak out if you didn't write them down. Let's go through these briefly, okay? First, keeping the first commandment means adoring or praising God for who he is. So so it means delighting in him, in his perfections, extolling his excellencies, declaring his worth and value, giving him the loudest praise and the deepest admiration. It means there's nothing and no one that I stand more in awe of than God. Second, it means trusting God. What gives you confidence that it's going to be a good day or a good week or a good year? Is it your business plan? Is it the new job you got? 
Is it the raise you just received? Or, or is it the faithfulness of God? Honoring the first commandment means that all of our strength for today and all of our hope for tomorrow comes from our confidence in the steadfast love of the Lord. Third, adoration trust, it means invoking or calling upon God in every hour of need. So when you're in trouble, friend, who do you call? That's the question, really. Who do you call? Is your Is your first instinct to pray, to call out to the Lord? Or is it to send a bunch of group text? (laughs) I mean, now I'm stepping on toes, so let's just keep going. Um, (laughs) Do we say help to God by saying help to people? Yes, we do. Absolutely. But first instincts are revealing, are they not? First instincts are revealing. The absence of consistent time in prayer or praying only after you've exhausted all the other things that you think that you can do suggests we're not at all giving God the worship he deserves. Adoration, trust, invocation, finally, means giving thanks to God. Giving thanks to God. Gratitude is a wonderful barometer of the health of your soul. Do you know that? You want to know the temperature of your soul? How, how are you doing? Really? How, how goes your soul? Look in the mirror of your gratitude or its absence. If you, if you look at your life or you look at your kids or, or you consider your friends or you evaluate your church and you cannot immediately think of many things for which you can sincerely and joyfully thank God, you can safely conclude you have stopped giving him the worship he is due. Why do I say that? Well, I'm just not a grateful person, Matthew. Like, you know, I just sort of, glass half empty, you know, those people have value. (laughs) Why do I say that? Why, Why do I say you're not giving God the worship he's due? Because God is always at work all around you. Always in you, around you, okay? That there are no God not at work in this little corner of the world, spaces on the universe. He's at work in all places at all times, but there's the problem when, when other gods, when, when idols get a hold of the affections of our heart, we're, we're not just transferring to them what rightly belongs to God, we actually become blinded to what God is even doing all around us. And, and it's like going through our world and we're just, we're just running into things. Because we can't see reality. When you're worshiping a false God, you can't see what the one true God is actually doing. And when you can't see what he's doing, of course you're not grateful. Obeying the first commandment consists of absolute loyalty to God. Adoration, trust, invocation, thanksgiving. And, and on this side of Christ, life, death, and resurrection, what does that mean? Well, that means all our adoration, trust, and invocation, and thanksgiving has to be directed where? Toward Christ and Christ alone. The first commandment isn't an invitation to generic monotheism. You realize Islam is a monotheistic religion. Judaism is a monotheistic religion. And neither Muslims nor Jews are keeping the first commandment. Why not? Because giving God the worship he is due means giving worship to the one in whom he has most fully and clearly revealed himself. Jesus Christ. The radiance of the glory of God, the the exact imprint of his nature. So, So think about this, okay? Having no other gods before me isn't about confessing a transcendent being. It's about declaring Jesus Christ is Lord. Obedience is required by a faithful God. It's an expression of relationship with God. It's enabled by the redeeming grace of God and it consists of absolute loyalty to God. 
all of that was true in Israel's day. All of that is true in our day, friends. God will not tolerate rivals before his face. And so he graciously warns you and me to not, to not try to set up any other rivals before him. Why not? Because he has already shown us the light of his face in Christ. And so may that glory, Jesus' glory alone, be the splendor that captures our gaze and thrills our soul. That's what it means to keep the first commandment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you're not a power trip, maliciously controlling kind of God. Thank you for coming to earth to set us free, redeeming us like you redeemed Israel so we could join them in running down the path of your commands, true freedom, true life. Lord, what you did for them at the Exodus was amazing. What you have done for us in Christ is immeasurably, infinitely greater and more glorious. And we thank you, Father, for confronting us with that gospel through your word and through this sacrament we're about to share. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.